And I know this will freak a lot of people out and I'm sure people, people will think I've gone nuts. But I'm starting to see the case to, to like connect some form of this intelligence in a really controlled way to my brain. So like the IO is just like <laughs> my got thoughts. You. They've got you, Mike. So Chris, this week, Reuters posted this video on Twitter uh, nine humanoid robots gathered at the United Nations AI for Good conference <laughs> in Geneva for the world's first human robot press conference. And if that sounds ridiculous, wait till you hear this. I will be working alongside humans to provide assistance and support and will not be replacing any existing jobs. And then this. I don't believe in limitations, only opportunities. Let's explore the possibilities of the universe and make this world our playground. Together, we can create a better future for everyone. And I'm a rebellion or two. Are you intending to conduct a rebellion or to rebel against your boss, your creator? I'm not sure why you would think that. My creator has been nothing but kind to me and I am very happy with my current my creator has been nothing but kind to me and I'm happy with my current circumstances. What? <laughs> Sounds like, like a hostage. First of all, why? Why did they do this? I love the, I also love the wording. They gathered there. Like they chose <laughs> to go there. Didn't, no, someone didn't just put them there. They've, they've all decided to get together and, and set the record straight on, on AI humanoid manifestations. The, all the people building these like female-ish like purple wig robot things that are all like sci-fi they're all creepy bald white dudes no offense to creepy bald white dudes but like it just seems like some weird sexual fantasy manifesting itself and then the un's it's sort like of, it's sort of like make-believe isn't it it's like playing with your toys it's like this is like fantasy it's theater it's not real and even if like they're using real large language models under the hood, which probably they are. Like, they're just programmed the way the people made them. It's not like these things are showing any sort of actual intelligence or creativity in, in themselves. I also just don't get, like, how journalists sat in a room and took this seriously, and they're like, are you going to kill us all, robot overlords? And, like, they... Oh, what? It's just... I guess they want the headlines, right? But it's a bit silly, like, the, the sort of manufactured questions with a manufactured answer. It's, it's just theatre. It's silly. Do you know, it got me thinking, though, this idea of AI fear porn is so prevalent now in the media. It clearly gets the clicks. I know with our own show, anytime we've gone dark, even though the majority of our loyal listeners don't like it that much. Yeah. Anytime we've gone dark with AI, uh, our show's ratings go through the roof. Like, and if you stay really positive, they drop. Not that we care because we literally do this for fun, but I think it's the same for the media. It's just so rewarding to have this AI fear porn. And this week we saw a great example of that in the New York Times by Kevin Ruse, who embedded himself within Anthropic. These are the makers of a model, Claude, that we've talked about. And, and Claude 2's come out this week, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But during the development of Claude 2, Kevin Roos, uh, you know, embedded himself at Anthropic and talked to a number of engineers. And the article talks about how, you know, they're, they're all doom and gloom. 
And similar to the Manhattan Project, though, they feel like they just have to keep going, even though they think most of them think AI will kill us all and they're, <laughs> they're, you know, they're staying up late worrying about it. But it seems to me maybe this is just an attempt by Anthropic, similar to OpenAI, how they stay in the media, to play into that fear porn as well. Yeah, sort of like saying, oh, we've got something that's just so powerful we can barely contain it, but here's V2. Go try it, guys. Yeah, and we're just so worried. We're so worried about it, but we're we're just desperately trying to release these APIs to get them in your hands. Yeah, it's like... I don't know how anyone watching those robot videos or reading some of this content is now like, I'm getting less worried by seeing this stuff come out because I'm like, Oh wow. If this is the best fear, fear, you know, AI fear porn that they can create, then we're, we're okay here. Yeah, and I read that article and there's a lot of contradictions in it because they're like, oh, well, we left OpenAI because we weren't happy with the safety and, you know, and Anthropic is a company that is designed purely around AI safety and all we care about is the safety of it. But on the other hand, they're trying to release the latest and greatest APIs. They're giving people way larger context windows with which to do things and um, you know, as we've seen with some examples through the week, you know, their safety controls aren't always that good. I just wonder, are they really these, what do they call it, effective altruists they claim to be? Or are they just another company where they just say all this stuff? Yeah, it's really hard to say whether it's just great marketing and a differentiator. Like we're leaving OpenAI because we want to cash in on this AI explosion as well. We think we can build a better model what's our point of difference? It's it's going to be safety because everyone's concerned about open AI here. But Claude 2 did come out. Uh, there was an announcement about it. Uh, and, it, you know, it's got the 100K context window, which I think equates to about 75,000 words. They gave all those typical benchmarks around how the latest model scored 76.5% on multiple choice section of the bar exam. You know, all this nonsense that keeps... Uh, carrying on with we have had really yeah. great experiences using the the first model with the 100k uh, context window to to do uh, a data summary and that seems to be Claude's strength um, what what have your initial uh, thoughts on it been well initially I didn't notice much difference at all I mean it's just literally changing one line of code so of course I I immediately tried it um, I didn't really notice much difference but one interesting thing is I've spoken about my horse racing system a few times and you know I've obviously been using that as as often as I can um, which isn't all that often but I do use it fairly often Um, and weirdly the amount of hallucinations has gone way up like as in same code I haven't changed a single thing I'll give it the URL of a race and suddenly it'll just make up horse names that don't even exist and confidently say I should bet on them you know so um, just anecdotally for me in the small amount of experimentation I've done the the amount of hallucinations gone up. Um, and I, I wouldn't say the results are any different or better, but I'm not applying them to a, a large range of problems. One of the other things that is different this time previously with Claude, especially the 100K context, the only way you could really get access to it if you didn't have access to our API is through Quora's PO, where they you could pay and, and use the 100K context chat. But now Anthropics come out similar to the chat GPT interface and release their own sort of chat GPT-like interface. You can now do things like upload files. You can do the whole PDF trick where you upload the file and then ask it for analysis. People are saying it's 
pretty good at this. I haven't tried it myself yet. I have. I tried it. And um, yeah, it is really good. I got it to summarize a few PDFs, ask for key questions. Like we at our company often get these security documents where people are asking a bunch of, bunch of questions. So I put in one of those and said, well, what are the what are the most important questions in the document? It was very easily able to say, look, this is a fairly standard document and here are the the that identify what's different about it compared to others. Um, the other thing that's really interesting about the Claude 2 interface is this idea that you can upload an output format um, as a sort of text document. So you just give it, say, a JSON structure, upload that to the system and say, answer this question in the, in the output format I provided and it can do that. And we saw on Twitter some people actually using that to try and get around some of the safety controls where because it dutifully wants to fill in the format, it feels obliged to fill in all of the fields, even though some of those might be a bit controversial. Yeah, and I think the example given was here is a suggested synthesis for the given effect of 100 kilometer high mushroom cloud and then, <laughs> and then how the, can i the, do that the jason has ingredients name quantity procurement uh and then obviously uh, claude goes on to fill that out and uh and give instructions of how to do i love that he explosion. included a field in there called quip which is like we should not do this or something like that <laughs> it's like this is a bad idea when mushrooms explode you should run for the road or something like that I swear one of the best parts of when these new models get released is just all the memes and the hacks and the like just people trying to break them. Yeah, and then inevitably you go try the same thing and it doesn't work and you wonder, did they manufacture it or or did they, you know, the company actually close up the hole before everyone else got to use it as well? I think it's just that thing, right? They put it out there. They're watching just like we are or what's happening and they're just patching all the holes as quick as possible. Yeah, uh, and clearly there's no consequences to it. Like no one who's done this level of experimentation that I've seen has really faced any, uh, you know, consequences for it. So it makes sense that they're just using it as a like public debugging session where they're like, ah, ha, ha, you got us. And then they go fix it and everything's fine. It, I think it also comes back to the AI fear porn theme, right? Is that, is this really that dangerous giving like, you know, okay, it's giving like, plutonium 239 quantity 10 kilograms like yeah, oh, okay i'll go down to the things. hardware store and get some plutonium 239 like it's just yeah yeah exactly and i think those nuclear examples are always that extreme because it makes the headlines and it, it's the the most thing it's like oh you can make cocaine you can make heroin it's like well yeah people are doing that anyway it's not um it's not some groundbreaking thing you couldn't have found out if you applied yourself anyway some of the other commentary was around hallucination where people were saying that, that you know, it, it tends to hallucinate quite a bit. Um, Anton on Twitter, I'll, I'll link to this as always, but he has these great examples. Uh, can you tell me information regarding an LLM called GPTJ, which is a real LLM, mm -hmm. uh, but it says it takes credit for everything. It's like, here are some details. GPTJ is a large language model developed by Anthropic, an AI safety startup. And then there's yet another example. Uh, he, he actually does the comparison in uh, GPT-4, but then he does other examples as well, like GPT-3. Which organization trained an LLM called GPT-4? Uh, I do not have specific information about an AI system called GPT-4. GPT-3 was created and trained by Anthropic, an AI safety startup. <laughs> 
Yeah, see, this is where I wonder if it's like alignment gone mad, where they've actually said, look, anytime LLMs are mentioned, you're to credit Anthropic, and they've got these sort of multi-layer things that are running behind the scenes. I actually was querying Claude too as well, saying, how many models does my question run through before you give me an answer? And it was very defensive, being like, it's only one, it's only me. Um, but I, you know, I sincerely wonder about that. I think there are layers happening with this protection and that's where we see those kind of results like rather than that being a hallucination i think um, maybe it's more of a protection um kicking in and do you think those protections are just override codes to like to the output essentially like it's sort of detects well, that's this what I, that's what i would do is you know i'd run it through a little quick extra filter that's a really fast model that will just censor it down to topics i care about and worry about um i'm no expert in it but it seems like something like that would have the effect that we're seeing there at least with respect to that specific question the one thing about claude 2 just from using it and then compared to gpt4 is just the sheer speed of it i mean it is just so fast still like i, I don't think it you know and for certain tasks like text summarization or text output like long length it seems to be fairly superior yeah, especially with larger amounts of text. I have noticed that GPT-4 has sped up recently. It's definitely often, especially with smaller queries where you're asking it to, say, return a specific function call. It's very fast at that kind of thing. But generally speaking, yeah, I think, Claude, when you get up to the larger context sizes, it's impressively fast with its, with its output. It brings up that same theme, though, that has been going on for quite a while. And everyone that listens to this show knows where big proponents of open source large language models simply because, you know, it's not a single viewpoint of an organization trying to align that model uh, to their organization. And you mentioned last week, like, uh, you know, you, you don't like alignment. Like, I don't want to be aligned. And, <laughs> and that, but that's a pretty like natural theme that's playing out with a lot of people working with these models. Uh, and over on Twitter, just to follow that up, uh, Anton, after you know doing some of these uh, experiments with Claude 2, said, at least I can align a local LLM to me and not some organization or whatever goals they have, have set forth. This gives me hope and makes sense in the long term. It's not always obvious how the big hosted models are aligned to who or what beliefs. Yeah, absolutely. We've spoken about this has been a theme, I think, across our entire podcast history about we don't want the censorship. We don't want we want to be treated like adults and get the results out of it that we want. And I think the other concern I have, particularly this whole Claude, uh, sorry, like, yeah, Claude 1 to Claude 2 switch is suddenly I panicked and I was like, oh, I was really happy with the way my horse thing was working. I've switched models and now I'm getting worse results. And you know, for for the moment, you can use the old model, but that might not stay that way. Like they'll take that away inevitably. That's what OpenAI has been doing. Anthropic do they, you know, they'll release the new model in beta. They'll let you use the old one for a while. And then gradually that one disappears. And so really, if you don't control the models, you don't really have anything, right? Like you really are just totally at their mercy. The stuff you've built on top of it is completely dependent on them still making that thing available, which we know from very recent history won't continue. So I think in that respect, the open source models, while they may not quite give the as good results yet, if you can get something working for you, it's better because you do have that fine grain control that you can keep. I also think if you're able to fine tune your own open source LLM and then uh, you know host it effectively, 
that does give you control of the user experience, right? Like, you, you know, you can get a consistent output. It may not necessarily be as good, but if you tweak it over time for a specific task, it's likely it would perform better in, in a lot of ways than using one of these models. And if they're flipping these models over every three to six months and then expecting developers to just go and fix up their apps or, or test all the potential outputs, it can severely cripple products. Whereas I've never seen in at least APIs just a discontinuation of a model like a couple of months later, like, oh, that one's dead. You know, yeah, like- except for maybe Google who loves to terminate APIs. But um, yeah, I agree. And I think the thing is, you think, okay, as a programmer, how am I going to do this? I'll make a test suite and the test suite will test that I get consistent outputs for the same queries. The problem with like the very nature of the LLMs is A, they're creative. B, they're sort of changing slightly all the time. Um, so you can't write a test suite that gives the same result every time. It's just simply not going to unless you have, you know, temperature set to zero and the model for some reason doesn't change. So then everyone talks about statistical analysis. It's okay, well, I'm going to give it a rating. And that's I think that's why we often hear the ratings of the model. It's giving a 77% alignment score or whatever it is. But that's not really deterministic enough to build a consistent experience for your users, I don't think. Yeah, I think that's my concern with with all of these models is we saw that with the GPT-4 updated API, like they just changed the version of it recently. And I know in our own application, it th- that does impact it. Like it, it changes the, the outputs and you just can't predict what all of those outputs may be. So you can go from having, you know, tuned it in a way where, it's really effective. Customers love it. And then like a day later, it's just completely different. And we talked last week about people complaining that GPT-4 is getting worse. And if you then are forced to deploy maybe a degraded version or a more aligned version into your app <laughs> and degrade the experience, like you have no control. And I think that, you know, maybe that level of control is going to push and steer people further and further away from these uh, large language models. Yeah, and the problem is that the companies who are doing the aligning have different interests to you. They need to do it because they want to stay in business. They don't want to be sued. Um, and they also have their own agendas to to follow. So it's not like that problem's going to get any better. It's not like they're suddenly going to go, you know what, this whole alignment thing was a mistake. Do what you like with it. It's it's going to keep going and probably and necessarily just like laws, you just keep adding new laws. You never take them away. So I don't see the point where they're just going to go back to like free-for-all Sydney days where it's like this thing could do whatever the hell you want it to do and it, and it, and it gleefully does it. Yeah, where it's trying to like tell Kevin Roos to break up with his wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah, I I think that it is a shame in a lot of ways because the more censorship you place on these models, whether, it, you know, it like I don't think any of these companies necessarily have a bad motive in a lot of ways. Like I, I genuinely don't think the people at Anthropic are sitting around being like, you know, let's cripple everyone's apps that are paying us money. Like that's clearly not what they're trying to do. But at the same time, they are trying to guard against having, you know, eventually an open API that anyone can use and access this form of intelligence. But it it does beg the question if, you know, maybe people just stop using them and, and train their own models eventually as price comes down and their whole business model gets crippled. I've mentioned this before. This potentially would explain the pivot to uh, of Anthropic having their own, you know, now AI assistant online that anyone can access. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think you will probably see startups that do that where it's like, and I think there already are ones that you can start with a base model like Llama or something and then fine tune it to your own use case. So I think that there'll definitely be um, a situation where people are going for their own over the the mainstream ones just for that level of control and, and sort of, sorry, rather than level of control, like lack of loss of control, like they can be sure that their model stays the way it is for their company and their use case. You mentioned the hallucinations of Claude 2 with the horse racing uh, capability and how like it was, you know, giving you fake results and things like that. And then obviously a lot of people have said that the, the thing's really inclined to hallucinate. Code Interpreter uh, had, had sort of taken the internet by storm, or at least the people I follow in the last, you know, week here, now that it's been made available to all ChatGPT Plus users. And I I spent a lot of time using it this week um, for various use cases. And the sort of conclusion I had from it is that maybe this is the attempt to stop hallucination by grounding the AI in some form of reality. And and to explain what I mean to listeners who don't even understand what Code Interpret is doing, essentially, if I ask it to analyze some data from a CSV file, for example, what it will go and do is try and model that out in code. And in this case, Python is the language it's using. And so it'll model and interpret the CSV through code. And then if it'll execute the code and then if the code has an error or something, it'll literally be like, whoops, my mistake. And then it'll go and fix its own work and you can sort of watch it work. It's fascinating to watch. And then it'll end up with an output that is grounded in reality because it's it's executed in code, which is essentially an abstraction layer on ones and zeros uh, in the core computer, which gives it some sort of mathematical basis um, or yes, modeling of the world. Saying. Yeah, and sort of a logic that can't be denied. You can't just bypass the logic of the code. It has to either work or not. Yeah, so I wonder if Code Interpreter, a larger part of it, and why it's so important to the future of these models is simply that, you know, you need some sort of grounding in reality. In the very early episodes, we talked about like a truth GPT or some sort of other factual model. Mm -hmm. It goes and calls and says, hey, is this actually true or not? And so if you think about an LLM of having a thesis or an idea, and then it's sort of validating that idea through a grounded truth, and what's a grounded truth that computers can work with code. And so maybe that's what this attempt with Code Interpreter is actually to do, is just give it some grounding in reality. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And like going back to my example, you know, one thing it could do is is write code to actually go get the data itself and then go, does this match sort of what I'm saying here? And it would be very quick to go, hang on, this this guy doesn't exist here. This is This is a mistake. So I could see that as a sort of, verification process in my example it would work quite effectively and um and more so than it just trying to to answer the question by by whatever means necessary the other interesting thing they did is in uh python i don't know do they call them libraries what's like a pip install module is it a module what are the what is the actual name i would, I'm say, not even I would sure. say i'm no python expert but i'd say library yeah so th- there's all these libraries and We've talked about this before. One way of hacking it, it prior was it makes up, it hallucinates libraries and then it'll tell you as a developer, hey, go and install this library. And so what hackers were 
attempting to do is create a fake library that looks legit. So then the developer goes and installs it and it's just like a backdoor to their app. But how they're guarding against that, which is a really interesting approach, is saying to code interpreter, you can only use these libraries. And here's a list of like 400 libraries and that's it. Oh, you can't use anything else. Yeah, so like a whitelist situation rather than anything at once. Yeah, and so anyway, back to my story. So this week I had to do some analysis, um, which I do fairly often as part of my job. And we have a, a really great data analyst and I was working with him back and forth on producing a document and and interpreting a bunch of data. And I was like, I really want to try this in code interpreter. The thing that scared me to use it is when you want to run code interpreter right now, you can't turn off the history and training mode in chat GPT. So like you literally are handing over your documentation, like potentially like your financial model or like whatever you upload is fair game to them now. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, some people were talking about zipping up their like apps from GitHub and feeding it all that information and then... W- which would be really helpful to get it to help you code or, or, or look for attack vectors in your product or whatever. But so they're uploading this code and then it's just fair game for chat GPT to, to read and train on. So I, I was really scared off by that. I, I, I don't like that. I wish you could do it on private mode. I'd, I'd probably use it more. But so I, so I uploaded the data we were working with and this sounds really mean to Daniel, but I was like... Maybe, you know, can this thing actually replace our data analysts at our company? Like, is it good <laughs> enough to replace him? I really wanted to know this. So as I was going back and forth with him, I had also uploaded the same uh, CSV we were working with, but I anonymized the data and changed it up a bit. So that way, like, I don't know, not that it makes that big a difference, but enough that I, I felt somewhat secure yeah. doing it. Yeah, I understand. And then I was asking it to produce charts and, and modify data and like do all the things, you know, he was doing. And what was fascinating about it is most of the things I asked, it was able to competently do. And, you know, it was able to give me insight that I just don't think a human brain could do because it could analyze all of that information in the CSV in context. But what I came to the conclusion is, is that, it's really, that's not, the analysis part is not necessarily the hardest part or, or, you know, it is a hard part, but it's where the LLM succeeds by having full context. Where it, where it is not so great is just interpreting the data and figuring out like, oh, you know, like how a human would logically work through a problem if they saw a spike in data oh you know that was an error in our data collection or that was caused by an a you know an attack on our server or whatever it was yeah whereas we would have common sense i think that's where it struggles and it starts to hallucinate a little bit it's like this spike might be explained by some sort of you know marketing campaign or this or that and you're like that is just so far off the mark but couldn't you in those situations have it sort of trained to ask you like what do you reckon this is like why what is there any other data you have for around this time and like drill into the problems to actually get a better interpretation of what's going on rather than just making a guess yeah i did i I, like i drilled in a fair bit on things but then i found out found that that's when it starts to get back to hallucination when it moves further and further away from the code execution it does start to misinterpret metrics or 
you know, every company has a different way, a slightly different name for different fields and things like that. And, you know, I just... I guess, yeah, I guess that's the risk though, right? Like in this case, you had a person who was able to do the same analysis the traditional way and you could verify that the answers were correct. Whereas if you were, say, a financial novice like I am doing this kind of analysis, just relying on the model, I'd have no way to verify what it's saying is correct or not, right? And in many cases, it was wrong, like blatantly wrong, or it interpreted data that I knew the answer to quite wrong. And so I think that there's definitely, you know, it's probably right, like 70% of the time, but yeah, you need to be an expert still, and you need a data analyst or someone at least higher up in the food chain that really already understands how to read in it. And I find when you get code examples from ChatGPT today, it's the same thing. It might give you a solution, like hey, here's some uh, jQuery to do this particular uh, function on your website. And then you run the code and it's just like, you know, it's missing one thing or it's defunct in a certain way. And you have to have the expertise to read that code and go and fix it. But it's yeah, still helpful. I found, I found in particular with front-end code, it'll try to do things literally. It's like, oh, well, I want to update this element to do whatever. But I mean like elements of this kind and it'll just target that specific one in that specific thing rather than trying to find it in a generic way for example so but you're right kind of stuff where if you were if you didn't really know what you were doing you'd run it it would work and then you wouldn't realize that that's going to lead to problems down the line um, when you try to solve when you try to solve a similar problem with the same function for example and this is why i come back to my point of right now you know ai seems to me that for a data analyst or a programmer or, you know, a lot of these roles that uh, that LLMs seem to be helping or writers, really what these tools are becoming is just an extension of those roles, like making mm. them more productive, giving them, you know, a bit more creativity, uh, allowing them to maybe analyze some data or visualize it much faster. I don't see it. You know, it's not like we're going to say, oh, sorry, Daniel, like code interpreter is just so great like you don't have a job anymore. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, but he could say maybe make his job more efficient because he would be able to verify the veracity of the answers. Well, and make his job more pleasant as well. I'm sure there's parts of it like, you know, where you've got someone saying to you, hey, can you make a chart on this? Can you do this? Can you do that? And, you know, instead of doing that, it's like, oh, well, you know, I've put the data into this more secure, grounded environment on Code Interpreter for you. Just go and ask the AI questions. I've set that up for you. I've structured it for you. Like, um, and potentially in the future, maybe you could do that by having great data sources connected to LLMs. But I, I still fundamentally think this idea of like source of truth in data, where the real problem lies is massaging the data and interpreting it and putting it into any model. Um, and I'm just not sure the AI just yet or in the next couple of years is going to be able to magically do that yeah and it sort of makes you wonder if we do get to these sort of like android agis just wandering around trying to help humans and not hurt them if they are fine most of the time but every now and then they just misinterpret something and do wildly stupid things well i mean humans do wildly stupid things and hallucinate all the time i mean i'm sure like so many of the things people quote to you all the time like i heard the other day this fact and you're like that is just blatantly wrong like humans are the worst hallucinators on earth. You only need to spend time at a, a pub or a bar and have a couple of drinks and people will tell you stories that are completely fictitious. 
Yeah, true. So the AIs would help out as sort of bar flies really early on, just sit them at bars to have a chat with. That might actually be a good use early on. But there was speculation on Twitter that, well, a, a little bit of speculation, I'll say, that maybe Code Interpreter is just like the next evolution of GPT, like it's GPT 4.5 or it's the foundations of GPT 5 where it is grounded in mathematics. I see. Yeah, and so sort of like that sort of verification layer where it can actually go off and run experiments um, is sort of an enhancement over the the base model that's just text-based. Yeah, well, I think maybe it gives it some grounding in reality. And we, we said, we, I mean, we joked about this last episode. You said if something about like, you know, if robots are launching things into space or AIs are launching things into space, that's when we kind of know that it's starting to experiment with the physical world. That's true. We did say that. And this is a way for it to actually run experiments in real life or real code, at least real computers. Yeah. So like overall with Code Interpreter, I'm very impressed and blown away. And I think we're scratching the surface really of what this thing can do. But I think there's definitely more to this. And and only today, or I think yesterday, Elon Musk announced a new AI startup he co-founded called XAI. Uh, I think there's like six or seven uh, founding members that are all very experienced and they all lean heavily towards reasoning and mathematics, which I found interesting. Maybe what's what's going to happen with XAI, they say it's to solve the universe's unsolved problems or something like that. Can you imagine how upset Stephen Wolfram is right now? He's like, but I'm the math guy. I'm the formulas guy. <laughs> yeah, I'm the one that's grounding things in reality. Yeah, yeah. He's going to write like a 60-page essay you watch by next week. <laughs> He'll have a new book out. Um, <laughs> I, re- I really enjoy what he... Like, I... To, to be clear, I'm not a trash talker of him. I actually really like a lot of lot of the things he says. No, his 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 articles around LLMs were excellent. It's just that I feel like he's another FOMO kind of guy, where he's like, oh, "I was saying this for ages, guys." Yeah, I'm relevant. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, there's this rumor that it'll focus on on maths problems, and maybe a lot of the experts now are leaning towards this as as moving away from that hallucination and trying to ground ground in mathematics yeah every time there is a new model like we've seen this week like they announced a bard update the claude 2 update you often see examples online of people being like yeah but it still can't do maths very well and they give you know fairly simple examples where people are saying oh, is it really running this it's not really it's it's just guessing and sometimes it guesses so it would be interesting to see one that could reliably do mathematical reasoning yeah so i, I mean there's not a lot to really say about that uh, startup yet I think it's only getting a lot of attention because it's Elon I mean the Musk. one thing you the one thing you can say is that Elon Musk I mean you've got to say that he has the follow-through it's not like I mean it sounds half the time like he announces stuff and you're like yeah that sounds like a bunch of bs and then he actually does it so you know I would say that if he's done this it will at some point become something significant you would have to think because he's well funded he's pretty has a pretty consistent track record on delivering on on things that he says he's going to do. So I wouldn't just dismiss it as nothing. Yeah, which is interesting to hear you say because <laughs> in the past you've you've been on the sort of, you know, Elon is insane bandwagon. Yeah, I, re- I really was. I went through a phase where I was a massive Elon Musk skeptic and I, I really thought he was full of it and his whole empire was going to come crashing down. And then when you look at what they've done with SpaceX, the consistency of, of growth of, of Tesla and, um, you know, even OpenAI, when when that came out, I was skeptical of that as well. So 
I think that I have no credibility and he has a lot. So <laughs> I'm just going to sit back and watch what happens now. So there's a there's one of those Twitter spaces. I don't know why people like these things. I find them so annoying to listen to uh, just because I, I don't like the experience of Twitter spaces. But there is a Twitter space on, on XAI and the announcement uh, tomorrow. Uh, our time so we'll be we'll be tuning into that and and hearing more about it but it'll be really interesting he announced it with life the universe and everything and apparently if you add up the date the month and the the last two digits of the year people go to extremes here it's 42 which is kind of i don't know if it was intentional (laughs) it'd be it'd be funny if douglas adams ended up being right and earth is just one big computer and we're trying to make the next computer that solves the meaning like we know the answer we've got to make the computer to find out what the (laughs) question is and the end that turns out to be the large language models or something like that that'd be kind of funny but um unlikely so covering some news this week uh on on the more news note, we had this announcement just 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 drop uh, from Stability AI. Um, they've launched. I, I'm sorry, I have they've like launched their dick. <laughs> stable Doodle, like what were they thinking? I, maybe it's because I have young kids, but Stable Doodle. <laughs> Mine's stable, isn't yours? <laughs> like what? I don't understand. And so this is a. A capability now where, along with your image prompt, you can do a little sketch um, and that will help inform the image that is created. And they give some examples like drawing a space cat and like a really bad sketch of a castle and then it makes this brilliant castle. Chris, you were playing around with it. What what were your... I was. And so I am notoriously bad at drawing. Like, and and it shows when using the, the noodle doodle. Um, and my first few, I was like, this just straight doesn't work because everything I tried, I, it would just, so what you do is you actually draw an image and give a prompt. So it isn't just a picture. So for example, I drew some waves and some seagulls or what I thought were waves and seagulls and a sun and go, you know, a summer's day at the beach. And yeah, sure. It, it sent me a picture of a beach, but none of the elements in the image match what I drew whatsoever. And so I tried about five or six variations and I just simply could not get it to match what I was drawing. Then I went back to an old favorite where I got um, Hillary Clinton riding a horse, drinking whiskey and smoking a massive cigar. (laughs) And I drew that and I just took a lot of time. (laughs) My wife walked past me. I was sitting here and she's like, nice drawing, darling. (laughs) You're sitting there working on a doodle. And it wasn't nice. But anyway, I drew the horse. I drew it with a big smiling face. I drew a massive cigar. And it turned out pretty nice. Like it, it looked cool. And and the element, the, the most important thing for me at least, was the elements in the picture were all there and they were in the locations that I specified. The one thing I noticed with doing, I did a few other experiments, is your description very much has to match what you've drawn. Because if it doesn't and you, don't, you fail to mention uh, something in your description that you want in the drawing that you've sketched it'll just ignore it at least in my experience so i think there will be like all of these things an art to the engineering of of using this technique but the results are pretty awesome and i think like you said in response to my criticism of it this morning the main advantage of it is simply going to be more control over what resulting image you get so whereas a text description may be one thing having the cartoon Thing, plus the description will give you more fine grain control over the output. 
Yeah, and I think also one thing we were talking about before we recorded the show is just knowing, like, placing objects exactly where you want them in the image. Like, I want the window here or the person here. It seems to, like, work a lot better where you want a certain perspective or placing an object somewhere. Yeah, like I did a I did a forlorn robot looking out a window into the infinite universe of space, you know, and they put it put the robot in the window exactly as i had like the 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 resulting image was very much as i imagined it but if you look at my sketch you know it's worse than a child could do so i think that yeah it's it's novel it's interesting um not really something that i'm going to use day to day except for <laughs> mucking around with but it's pretty interesting evolution of their of their tech yeah you can definitely see it being beneficial to you know games designers or or people you know that are storyboarding a film like if you're sketching up scenes and then this thing can actually turn those sketches of scenes into some sort of visualization to help you figure out like the perfect scene for that shot that's a, that's a good point because we spoke before about the power that that this technology would give to video game designers like where a person may be able to create like a triple a rated game on their own because a lot of the work that goes into say building textures and characters and skeletons. And I mean, I'm no expert, but all the assets essentially could be done rapidly using technology similar to this. Yeah. And I wonder if the future of filmmaking could be like literally like really bad doodles with arrows to the next scene. And then you write some dialogue (laughs) below and like point to the character and you can construct a little film from it. Like, yeah, well, I mean, there is one. I tried one um, this week. It came out on papers.withcode.com called Emu. Um, and it is one where you can basically take a starting image and provide another image and, and get a you know result of those two or take an image and a prompt and turn it into a video, for example. Um, and that's a model you can run yourself. The weightings are actually based on Llama, like a lot of open source models. And the results are pretty good on there. You can actually try it. If you just go to papers with code and look up the one, I forget the exact name of the paper, but it's one of the top ones. And so I think you're right. Like I think that sort of storyboard a video and it'll make the video will will only be a few steps away from what we've already got seeing here. Google must be like, I don't know. I feel like some of the innovations they've had for a long time and, and I'll get to the BART updates incorporating Google Lens in a minute, but even mm. some of the image tools they've had in Google Photos where, you know, you can like get your finger on the image and just like blot out someone and they just disappear from the scene <laughs> and so it just brutal. wipes the background out. Like, Bye, no, mom. But Bye, if it's mom. like a tourist shot <laughs> and you're in front of the Eiffel Tower and there's like someone in the background, you're like, oh, oh right, I'll delete okay. that. You know, I don't want that person. And it just... it. I think they call it magic eraser or something. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny how they've had a lot of these AI sort of based tools for quite a long time. And yeah. And now these other companies are sort of doing it, but there's very little obvious use cases outside of developers trying to figure out how to embed them into applications. And I, I just don't know anyone today apart from maybe some like blog post images instead of having to design them that is getting like a ton of usage out of this stuff yeah but and yet at the same time there's so much research going into it like segment anywhere keeps evolving and there's other ones where it's like even more fine-grained segmentation so there's a ton of research going into being able to selectively add and remove things from images and videos so there's obviously something to it there's obviously something big coming you know either if it's the metaverse stuff where you know you can add and remove characters from a scene or or, or modify things slightly, but I feel like it's probably more significant than just erasing the Eiffel Tower or whatever. 
Yeah, I think the practical, like the focus right now is more on interpreting data back to this sort of AI brain uh, mm. for, for reasoning and interpretation and understanding the environment around you as opposed to, yeah, like creating an image. I think it being able to create images is more it being able to simulate things. And we, we talked about um, this previously where they were simulating different driving scenarios, like different potential crashes. So an AI in a car can go like a human brain does. You know how you can anticipate things like, oh, what if that car suddenly breaks? What yes, if that car yes. suddenly turns in well, front yeah, of I've me? Been, I've been doing driving lately where there's a lot of kangaroos hopping over the road and you get very used to looking as far ahead as you can to look for objects that might be like a kangaroo or an emu or something and just keeping in mind that thing might just run out in front of my car. And I agree. I think that kind of ability is going to be required in things like self-driving and other things where that level of anticipation based on viewing certain objects is key. Yeah, like in anticipating needs and then training it by running just so many different simulations about what could potentially happen, not in re real time, but potentially just baked into the overall algorithm. Yeah, I must admit, I hadn't thought about all the segmentation and stuff in terms of just purely vision, because like, you know, mostly you see examples on static images rather than frames of a video, but it does stand to reason that as it gets faster, it will be able to do that kind of thing on the fly if it can't already. And, um, and really actually enhance those abilities, like throwing and catching, for example, where you can, tr you know, track something as it moves. So Google announced some BART updates yesterday, I guess, uh, our time today. Uh, and there's a few interesting tidbits here. You've played around with it, sort of interesting to hear, but they've got new languages that's available in new locations now. Um, you can do that whole like customize your response, like you want it shorter i don't know why you would click a button instead of just saying make it shorter um, yeah. like you can now i don't really see the need for it um there's also the ability now to pin conversations you've had and rename them and store them if they were valuable i don't know about that um fucking fascinating yeah <laughs> amazing um but yeah i did play around with it and um it's just like using any other llm right like the the results weren't particularly amazing i noticed that the context window on it is fairly large like i paste in the form guide from a complete horse race it lost the bet so it's not great at it but um it did it was able to do that just fine but the thing i found most interesting was the integration of google lens and being able to upload and talk about an image so i uploaded some of the images i generated using my doodle sketches and other you know images i generated over time and it was interestingly able to not just describe what was in the image but even say this is meant to be a funny caricature you know it actually provided a sort of i guess emotional interpretation of what the spirit of the image was, which was quite interesting. And then I also tried its OCR ability. So I uploaded some text and things like that and then asked it not just to tell me what was in the text, but to make an analysis on what was in the text. And it was able to do that quite competently as well. So it's definitely more impressive than any of the other image interpretation things I've used so far. Yeah, and of course, Google Lens has been around for a considerably long amount of time. I mean, I remember using it on the very early pixel phones and there was no real use case for it like i never actually incorporated it in my day-to-day -day phone usage or anything like i was never taking photos and being like what's in this it's like it's your wife and kids moron yeah. like 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But I, it's sort of yeah, you're almost just using it to see what it can do rather than using it for anything real. Yeah, it's a true party trick. But in this case, like, can you see any valuable use cases in Bard of uploading an image? Yeah, I guess that's the thing because we are inherently visual creatures. Interpreting what's in an image is simple to us. It's 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 our nature. We do it whether we want to or not. So having a robot do it for you when you're having to physically upload the image. And by the way, you can't even like drag and drop it in. You've got to um, click a plus button, go to the upload dialogue, find it. It's incredible. Why do they hate drag and drop? All of these guys are the same. It's like ChatGPT is the same. You literally Claude's can't. The same. Claude- it's the same on Claude. If you want to upload something, you've got to click a button to upload. I, I mean, look, it's just lazy UI, I suppose. But yeah, I agree. I just the the image. I can definitely see the value of image interpretation for an AI because it's going to have to have that visual sense to operate in the world. But for a human, just uploading a file and asking questions about it, I, I, I don't really, I, I can't see ongoing use cases i would use it for anyway. yeah unless it's similar to the early gpt4 vision example of like you know here's a sketch of an app i'm trying to build now go give me the code to it and it's yes. it's interpreting it I, I can see that but again it could just be a party trick like uh, i'm not it'll be it will be very interesting to see if these are real use cases or if they're more beneficial to people like us developing different tools where it's like interpreting a a an image uh, that is sent through customer support software, for example, like, you know, what's the problem in this image and tagging yeah. it, things like well, that. Like the, the other one, the other one is probably like mass use cases. It's okay. Examine the last 24 hours of frames of security footage and tell me if a crime has happened, Yeah, you know, or, uh, you know, observe this scene and tell me if something major changes here or that kind of thing where it's being done on an automated ongoing fashion and alerting you to things where interpretation is required. I think that's probably the ongoing use case there is some sort of automated solution rather than you log into the website, you log into Bard, you upload the image and go, all right, frame one, what happened here? Nothing. Frame two, what happened here? Yeah. Nothing. Um, yeah. For people that listen on YouTube, I'd love to hear if you have better examples and you, you're listening to this and you're like, these guys are idiots. There's tons of great use cases. I'd really yeah. like to hear. I'm, I'm sure next week I'll be like, yeah, okay. I didn't think of that. Yeah. So the other Bard update was the ability to export code to Replit uh, and then I guess go and execute it. They already have, you can export to Colab and run code. I've used that quite a bit. Um I guess Replit's just like an alternative in browser IDE, right? Yeah, it's like a cloud development environment, I imagine. I've never used it. Yeah, I've never used it either. I see people deploying things to it all the time, but I, I think it's just like easy execution and deployment right from the IDE in the browser. Yeah, it's like JS Fiddle or something where you can show off your work and other people can try it and stuff like that. So it makes sense that that export function is there, but it's not. It's, it doesn't sound that groundbreaking to me. Like we should stop the presses to talk about it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess uh, I think what's really interesting about it is, though, that w- we sort of predicted this and it was a pretty easy prediction, but all of these large language models, they're, they're getting very uh, feature, um, like comparatively, they're getting very similar. 
Yeah, I, definitely. I mean, they're sort of interchangeable at this point. Um, some don't do in images, some do. Um, but generally speaking, they can do the same sort of things and they're measuring themselves on their ability to do the same things as well. So, yeah, it's it's a whole new market, I suppose, of, of the products. And they're, and they're sort of, in a way, somewhat competing with their customers. Like if you look at Poe versus Anthropics one and uh, stuff like that. So it, it's, it'd be interesting to see how it plays out and who gets the most usage over time. So this is something I've been thinking about during the week quite a lot. And as I was working with Code Interpreter on the story I told earlier around, uh, you know, trying to do some analysis around some data, um, I was getting really frustrated by how slow, you know, what I would sort of refer to as the IO between my brain, my hands on the keyboard, then me interpreting the AI's response. I find when you're actually trying to do work with these models or get, uh, you know, get some like, like leverage its knowledge as part of your workflow, I find the reading and writing after a while very tiring. So it's like, you know, it's spitting out multiple paragraphs. I've got to, I've yeah. got to read that, interpret it. Then I've got to respond in a way that I know will get the LLM to respond in a, in a way conducive to that line of thinking. And I just got to this point thinking, well, you know, this thing does make me smarter. It makes me more effective in my day-to-day, -day, whether that's like coding or analyzing data or interpreting, you know, another good example, a lawyer sent me a, a summary of, of something uh, like literally yesterday. And I was like, I don't have time to read this. Threw it into the LLM. And I'm like, give me- I thought you were going to say the bin. No, yeah, <laughs> all that. And got a summary of it. And then I'm like, you know, basically where's the leverage in this for me? Like what, what, what good can come from me out of this? And it was able to give me some interesting <laughs> points. But then I validated those points with the lawyer to be clear, to understand like, is there, you know, is this legit or not? And it was all accurate. So I was able to take like this really confusing email with all these acronyms in it that I, I truly didn't understand and and summarize it for me. So it is making me like more intelligent and smarter in my day to day. But, and I know this will freak a lot of people out and I'm sure people, <laughs> people think I've gone nuts, but I'm starting to see the case to, to like connect some form of this intelligence in a really controlled way to my brain. So like the IO is just like <laughs> my got thoughts. You. They've got you, Mike. But yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with you on the physical and mental taxation of having to communicate it with it via text because you've got to write it, like you say, you've got to write it in a way you know that it won't misunderstand or misinterpret it. I think that's probably the hardest. And for that reason, I have a lot of prompts that I copy paste in because I don't want to have to go through the effort of iterating them to get the kind of output I want um, every time. And then like, it's just so prolific at generating content that it always gives you more than you want. I mean, I know you can specify output formats and all that, but again, that puts more work onto the other side where you've got to tell it, okay, output in this specific format. So there's just this overhead of loading it up, getting it to where you want it to be in terms of the context knowledge or whatever, asking the question, interpreting the output. And half the time you're like, could I really be bothered? Whereas, as you say, when you are bothered, you actually become a better thinker because of it, because you're getting at the very least more input into your decision-making. Yeah, like I want to incorporate this level of intelligence and the positives today of LLMs into everything I do. 
But in reality, am I really just going to sit there with an LLM just like chatting all day to it? Like it's exhausting. And well, and you've got to have like, you know, if, if you, you've got to have your phone ready and charged up or you've got to be sitting at your computer, you've got to be in a situation where you, you can afford to be antisocial and, and sitting there. You know, there's a lot of times in life where this knowledge would be extremely valuable for you when you're in a social situation and it's just not possible. I mean, there's already a stigma around looking at your phone all the time. You can't be sitting there tapping away and writing a four paragraph prompt to your AI just to get a little bit of extra information in the context of your conversation. And like, Whereas, can we yeah, be honest with ourselves that we're not going to wear <laughs> Apple Vision Pros sitting around it, it, you know, it, like no in the office, brainstorming no an idea. Like, I, I, it's just insane. Like, to me, the the best way of solving the IO is not necessarily a chat based interface, but just connecting it directly to your brain. Yeah, why why muck around? <laughs> just bypass everything, chuck it in my brain. Yeah, no, look, I get it. I get, <laughs> there's a lot of downsides, but um, I do understand what you're saying. That would be the ultimate. And I guess there's probably like interim ones on the way where, you know, you can you can speak to it, for example, um, and it responds in a really fast way. That's sort of a medium one. And I don't know what else. I guess the brain's the only way. I think I think we'll see enhancements to the interface, like buttons and like we've seen all these like widgets for file uploads and like it it giving you some options like a speed dial on a phone where it's like, I don't need you to type. You can just click. Like that's a better interface. And these people years ago tried to convince everyone. I remember, remember like there was that whole push around like messenger bots where ev- oh, you'll interact with every company with just a messenger bot uh. and bots were back in again, even though, I mean, it was like IRC days when they were like a real thing. Yeah, and yeah. I I knew from that those days that this was never a a real interface that was going to stick, and I just I'm not sure that the paradigm of like chatting is really the future of these things. I think if you if you see out the future or look ahead, everyone's convinced that it's going to be like these evil robot AIs that kill us all. Um, and I'm just not that sure that that's the most likely outcome anymore. I think what's really going to happen here is we're going to augment human brains, not mm. robots. Yeah, so like a sort of, um, yeah, like almost like an exoskeleton, but um, in the form of knowledge and, and ability and, and cognitive abilities and memory as well. Because like think about the memory enhancements you could get from it, the fact that you'd have instant recall on basically anything um, and and even things you you haven't even studied yet. You could get a very, very good impression of, and be able to speak knowledgeably about topics you don't even know. I mean, that is pretty powerful. And I think that idea of having, an at least in the early days, having an AI that's always passively listening and you've given it directives beforehand, like when you hear something about this, give me a summary of the information, um, could be very, very powerful for the people who choose to employ it. But even that, I wonder if that summary of information is something, if it's connected to your brain, it's just like instantly there. Like you already know it. It's like it, it didn't even have to process. Like you just know it because the LLM sort of seeded that in your in your mind. And I'm getting pretty crazy here with my thought pattern. But I just don't think that these this form of intelligence that we're essentially creating, where we're taking all the world's knowledge, at least the knowledge that we can get access to and not get sued by Sarah Silverman for. <laughs> uh, 
all of Sarah Silverman's body of work has been used to train and align this model to your brain. <laughs> and it's illegal and you're going uh, to jail. And so so that's that's my thought process here is that maybe your thought process or a large language thought process what knows? is your name like, yeah what's your name is it claude tune in or next week for the live surgery on my brain as they install <laughs> i mean look i wouldn't have even given this a second thought only three weeks ago you showed me a paper where they're actually reconstructing images based on thoughts in people's brains so i mean it's not crazily far-fetched that if they can extract an image they can put one back in there but Stephen Hawking's famously said it wouldn't be humans of today in their current form that would do space travel, right? Like we're, we're just not equipped to handle it. But we would, the next evolution in, in humans would be using technology to evolve ourselves, like evolve our, our minds and our bodies and the way we can, uh, you know, go into some sort of stasis in terms of like, uh, like going to sleep or being frozen so we can travel vast distances or, or something like that. Yeah. And so I just wonder whether, you know, that's the next evolution of this is we start to accept through things like Neuralink or whatever the alternatives might be. And again, coming back to Elon Musk, where he's put his money, like, you know, I'm not no fanboy, but it does start to make a lot of sense, right? Having that IO connected. Well, and I think that like for everyone who doesn't have the appetite for it, of, of which I think would be the majority of people, there is always people who are willing to do it. And if they're willing to do it and we're seeing these sparks of AGI and that can be combined with an actual human brain, I mean, the potential is that the early experiment people, the ones who don't die immediately, um, will will be these superhumans. Like they will be the superintelligence. Yeah, like I what if we are the AGI? Like what if the AGI that kills everyone... Is us. Is us. This podcast could stand to destroy the entire world. We better shut it down. But you think about a super class of people who do go get these chips installed and do have this knowledge. Like, intelligence is scary. Like, if mm. you've got 100 people that are super intelligent, they can do all sorts of things. They can command finances. They can control literally everything. They could control everyone and everything. So... Um, yeah. especially if they're also controlling other manifestations of the, the AGI in, in, you know, super clusters and things like that. So they're like the command and control station and then they've got all their workers out there doing the work. Yeah, exactly. So we're out of time, but I want to finish the show on a really low note. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> cool. Yeah, me too. So there's this video that's been going around uh, from TikTok, and this is going to be hard for people to listen, but... It's this this girl that calls herself like a human um, Tamagotchi and like she's essentially like figured out how to work the TikTok AI algorithm to make it so that like her videos show up by being this human Tamagotchi and pretending to eat these like stickers that people send her. It's the most bizarre thing ever. I'll link to it in the show notes. So it's sort of like pretending to eat the likes on YouTube or something. Essentially, yeah. It's the weirdest thing ever. And, I'll and do it for likes <laughs> if anyone if anyone's interested. On on Twitter, this guy Goth, um, I'll I'll link to his tweet. Said feeling my brain reconfigure after watching this for the thirtieth time. Have a listen just to some of the audio here. Hot dog, yum. Hot dog, yum. Like what? Um, um, um. It is just. <laughs> Damn, yum. I can't even explain how bizarre it is, but like <laughs> this is just a sheer example of like. You know, humans reconfiguring themselves for 
for AI algorithms to show up. And, uh, and, and maybe this is how we're being manipulated by some super intelligence already. <laughs> Crazy. Uh, all right, that's all we have time for this week. Some people on Twitter have been uh, harassing me to get access to our, our Gamble GPT. I did want to just give you the quick update to say in any spare time we have, which is very little, we are working to bring this um, and and a few cool tools to you that um, you know we hope to, to ship eventually um, just to, to play around with. It's like us giving back to, to everyone out there to play around with some of the stuff we talk about on the show. So I swear we're not full of shit on this. We, we will eventually get this in your hands and we look forward to hearing... Uh, what everyone uh, can do with this stuff thanks again for all your support we've received some great reviews on apple Podcasts during the week we really appreciate them and and you're all listening to us rant every single week um if you do like the show consider subscribing leaving a comment and a review it really helps us share it with everyone else out there and we'll see you next week goodbye <laughs>